Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel, and we are joined today by Kenneth Cobb, author of Retail Inequality, Reframing the Food Desert Debate uh, from University of California Press. Ken, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, So before we talk about the book itself, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how it is that you came to this particular project? Okay. Well, um, I am a sociology professor at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. And um, I have been working with a couple of local neighborhoods uh, for about the past 10 years, uh, just trying to equip them with basic social data they need to work with their policy leaders uh, to make uh, meaningful changes in their neighborhoods. Um, This started with a a fight with the State Department of Transportation over the planned demolition of a bridge, which I know doesn't have anything to do with food deserts. Um, But it really was an opportunity to engage in some community-based participatory research um, that eventually produced some data that got involved in a threatened lawsuit at the federal level uh, that resulted in some negotiations uh, that eventually resulted in a new pedestrian bridge being built in the neighborhood. Um, And during all of that, uh, I was asking people about their neighborhood, what they thought, what they needed. Um, And this issue of the bridge obviously came up because that was the subject of our little political fight. But the second topic, almost without fail, was always the lack of a grocery store. So they had identified the lack of a grocery store and just the general substandard food options in their neighborhood as just really... um, a point of contention. They were just frustrated by it. And so that's, I kind of let them lead the way uh, to um, direct my next research project. And so that's really what I started about eight years ago now, um, talking to people sitting, you know, in their homes at their kitchen tables, just asking them how, where um, they buy their food and consume their food and how they make those kinds of food related choices. Uh, And that led to the book. So let's step back a little bit and talk about sort of the larger framing of this. And then I want to return to talking about what you learned from the residents themselves. Uh, so when we're talking about lack of access to things like a grocery store in a low-income community, that's often framed as a food desert. So talk to us a little bit for folks who may not know, what's a food desert? Where does the idea and the framing come from? And what should we know about it before we hear you talk about way of why that may not be a useful way to think about what's going on in those places. 
Right. It's um, there's still debates about the terminology today, uh, but interestingly enough, it started in the 1990s in Scotland. That was where the food desert term was actually coined in a mundane white paper from a public health agency interviewing people who are residents of a public housing project. Um, and it was referring to uh, neighborhoods or geographic areas that lack easy geographic access uh, to healthy food, uh, namely a, a full-scale supermarket. Um, that term crossed over the Atlantic and entered into American politics pretty quickly by the late 90s and early 2000s. It got picked up in the academic researcher uh, research field. Um, and eventually the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, stepped in and gave a, a working definition uh, for urban areas to be uh, an area with high rates of poverty, low rates of vehicular access, so people without cars, um, and uh, no grocery store within a one mile radius. Uh, so that's a food desert for an urban environment. Uh, for a rural environment, the radius expands to 10 miles, so a, a 10 mile radius. Um, and it's largely framing uh, access in, in geographic terms. So it's, it's hidden or embedded within this concept is this idea uh, that if you can't get to healthy food, you're going to be more likely to be tempted to buy the cheaper, less healthy food that's closer to you um, and more readily available in geographic terms. So as you've said a couple of times now, you, you talked about this specifically as being framed uh, often as access to healthy food. So we've had a couple of decades worth of research uh, since the, the framing here uh, was, was brought across the ocean. Tell us a little bit about what we know from the academic research about proximity to a grocery store with healthy uh, alternatives and what we know about what that does and doesn't do in terms of, of shopping and eating behavior. Right. So in uh, the early 2000s, 2008, 9, 10, uh, researchers had generally uh, concluded that the distance to grocery stores was playing a large role in people's diets, and it was ultimately producing um, unhealthy uh, diet-related outcomes. So you can think of uh, higher rates of obesity, diabetes, hypertension. Um, and so researchers were, were going into these neighborhoods, mapping out specific areas, and uh, finding these correlations. Uh, around 2012, 2013, the research started to take a little bit of a turn in that there were clear correlations with a lot of these um, diet disease-related outcomes um, in areas without grocery stores. But the causal mechanism was becoming a little cloudy in terms of um, if we put a grocery store back in those areas, subsidized one or installed one, um, it wasn't really changing people's dietary behavior. And so that's where I track in the book uh, the slow motion change within the research community between 2010 and 2018 um, of taking what was almost settled science uh, for the most part and then kind of reopening that debate and then finding some actual problems with those uh, causal assumptions. Uh, now, again, there are there's still to this day high rates of uh, correlation between lack of grocery stores and high rates of um, obesity and other diet-related diseases, 
Um, but the the variable that is really causing that is is poverty. Um, and so the grocery stores aren't there in these poor neighborhoods because there isn't the customer base to support them. Um, and people in those communities living in poverty are also encountering all sorts of stressors um, in their lives. And these are also related and in some ways causing uh, the diet related diseases. So you had uh, this kind of change and re-questioning of, of food deserts. Uh, and then you got into this whole new uh, terminology debate in terms of um, should we even call them food deserts because there's lots of food in the food desert? Um, there's so the term uh, food swamp uh, came uh, into the picture. Um, then you had uh, the idea of well, there might be some food there, but economically it's so expensive. You can think high-end farmers markets or um, sort of boutique luxury brand grocers. Um, there's food there, but it's almost a food mirage. That's another term that came out uh, more recently. The terminology of food apartheid. Um, digs into the institutionally racist policies that created areas without grocery stores today. So these are um, housing policies, roadway policies, uh, all of these uh, big governmental decisions um, had systematically discriminatory effects uh, against largely, uh, in, in my case, uh, black communities. Um, and so We've kind of come back to the beginning in terms of trying to understand how and why is it that people are making sense of their food environment and what is driving their dietary behavior and why they make the decisions that they do. Perfect. So let's see if we, we can sort of, of of figure out how to make sense of, of this disconnect um, and zoom back in and, and talk about the folks um, who you spent time with and spoke with. So if you would just tell us a little bit sort of about methodology, who did you talk to? How did you find them? How much time did you spend with them? Those kinds of questions. What should we know about your process? Yeah. Well, uh, Greenville, South Carolina, uh, people may or may not be familiar with it, um, but it is a, a small microcosm of uh, the effects of urban policies of the past that is common across the United States. So in the late 60s, Greenville, South Carolina was a self-titled textile capital of the world. Uh, these textile jobs provided the employment base and the ex auxiliary industries around them uh, really caused a, a population and economic boom for the city. Uh, but starting in the 80s and the 90s, in the process of what sociologists call deindustrialization, so uh, the loss of manufacturing jobs, uh, the city really went on, had some hard times. And so uh, this is a similar story uh, across America. In Flint, Michigan, it was the loss of the auto automobile industry. Uh, in Youngstown, Ohio, is steel. Um, this was a uh, a major refitting of the American economy and the loss of jobs due to automation and offshoring. So in this decline period, uh, as jobs were, were going away from Greenville, uh, you also had the simultaneous birth of the suburbs. And again, this is not unique to Greenville. Uh, you had large uh, suburban municipalities starting to, to pop up on the peripheries of cities uh, the government is heavily subsidizing the highway and utility infrastructure to enable those suburban developments. And you got a large scale white flight. So these are white households leaving urban centers and moving to the suburbs. And when they leave, they take their economic capital with them, uh, which is also the basis of the customer base for local retail. 
So local retail is on hard times. Um, at the same time, uh, starting in the 80s and 90s, you get the big box storification of America, the Walmarts, the Lowe's, the Home Depots. Um, and these large scale big box stores are locating near the suburbs uh, on the peripheries of cities. And because of the economies of scale of these retailers, the small mom and pop stores back in the city start to collapse. And so this is the case when I entered into the field uh, in Greenville in 2014, 2015, they had just lost um, a small grocery store and had officially become a food desert, according to the USDA definition. Uh, so I had been uh, working with a couple of neighborhoods. Uh, they were predominantly black, um, had much higher rates of poverty than the rest of the city. Uh, and my job was really just to talk to people and figure out um, how they got to the store. What kind of store did they want? Um, did they feel like their political leaders were listening to them? Uh, and through these discussions, I eventually did about 100 hour-long interviews. Um, I came to learn that they saw their food environment in ways that most of the research on the topic kind of glossed over. Uh, by most of the research on it was a much more macro level um, and geographic focus. So it was kind of looking at maps from a distance. Uh, but I was trying to understand sort of the, the micro processes, uh, the ways that people in interpreted their options, uh, how they perceived uh, geography and distance uh, in their everyday lives, um, and then just came to understand that they were really sort of strategic and tactical people in terms of uh, taking advantage of available food uh, resources in ways that if just looking at a map um, and just counting up miles and distance to store uh, kind of uh, missed. Perfect. So I want to uh, talk a bit about uh, what you learned about how people thought about their food choices and how they went about securing food. And in the book, you you frame this in in five broad categories: uh, uh, people's perception of their own local food environment, uh, access to monetary resources, access to transportation, their own social capital, and then the household dynamics of the particular household that they're inhabiting. Um, so if if you don't mind, let's take those in order. So what do you how how do people People perceive this so-called food desert as they're living in it. How do they think about food and access to it? Yeah, so um, people were divided in kind of two camps when it came to perception. You had longtime residents who uh, remembered when the mom and pop stores were in town, uh, and so they they measured uh, their food environment in terms of past versus present. So over the course of their lives, they had seen their options slowly degrade. They had seen stores close and they'd seen new ones open up, but uh, much farther away from, from the neighborhood. Uh, newer residents had a more uh, comparative in terms of uh, they're comparing this town to other towns or this side of town versus the other side of town. Uh, they're driving through their neighborhood and they're seeing certain options, the inundation of uh, liquor stores, uh, pawn shops, payday lenders, and whatnot. Uh, and they're, but on their way to work or on their way to church or to see their family, they're going through other parts of town and they're seeing much higher quality retail. Um, and so to put perception uh, into the model of how people make food-related decisions uh, is to acknowledge that sometimes a resource can, can be geographically closer, but it can also be 
invisible in plain sight. So really high-end farmers markets or niche or boutique grocers uh, may have been geographically accessible, but they just didn't seem, they weren't, um, they didn't see these neighborhoods as their customer base. Uh, these more, they were directed more towards more affluent, more white communities. Um, and so local residents uh, acknowledge that there might be some geographically accessible food resources, but they didn't perceive them as real options for them. They didn't see them as retail that was designed for them, uh, staffed by them. Uh, they saw it as uh, generally for, for other people in other communities and not for them. And they, they understood this as a statement about their value and their community's value to some extent, yes? Yeah. So, um, you know, the retail options, food included, are symbolic markers of the worth of any community. You can just think of the last time you, you drove into a new part of town uh, or a new area of the country that you weren't familiar with. You come in late at night. Uh, there's no one on the streets or sidewalks and you're trying to get a sense of place. What do you look to? You look to the stores. Uh, do the stores have bars on the window? Do the stores um, seem like they're selling uh, alcohol or vice-related products? Um, or are they uh, cafes and yoga studios and other types of high-end retail? And so um, this was the, the grievance of the neighborhood was not so much that we want to be able to buy healthier food uh, all the time. It was really they were sick and tired of substandard retail because they feel like that was reflecting a, a version of their neighborhood that they did not see in themselves. They wanted retail that reflected their values and their interests, and they, they felt like uh, businesses just weren't catering to them. So is it fair to say that that they wanted to see fresh fruits and vegetables and other healthier options available, uh, but didn't necessarily want to purchase them for themselves and their family? Yeah, I mean, they they it was it's complicated and it's it's a difficult political argument for them to make. But um, they wanted the option of being able to shop at nice, high quality retail, just like the other side of town. Um, their budgets and their wealth and income did not necessarily mean they would be able to support those businesses on a consistent basis. But that really wasn't the point. Um, they wanted better quality retail, even if they knew they might not be able to shop there all the time. What they were really frustrated with is that their options were reduced to the lowest economic level um, in ways that they felt reflected poorly on their neighborhood. Um, so let's continue to move through your 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 category. So what else should we know about the ways in which uh, uh, financial resources constrained food choices or or structured their decision making process? Yeah, well, obviously, if you don't have economic resources, um, right. then you can't buy uh, higher quality foods. Foods, for the most part, uh, the most nutritious foods are also the most expensive per calorie, and the least nutritious are the cheapest per calorie. Um, but it was it, through my interviews, I, I interviewed people of a broad variety of economic circumstances, and I kind of came to see that interventions to Im improve food access or really need to be targeted towards um, a specific uh, subset of the population. Um, and this is people who are able to buy all of their food uh, during the month, um, but yet are living kind of close to the poverty line and a small increase in price 
either by food or transportation costs can really make or break a, a trip to the store. Um, and so this is what the census calls the near poor, people living at 100 to 150% of the poverty line. So if you can think of in the United States, a family of four, the poverty line is 27500 a year. So a family of four making between $27,000 and $36,000 a year. For them, having to travel an extra mile to the grocery store can add extra costs, either in bus fare or having to pay someone to give them a ride or the wear and tear on their car. Um, and that can really cut into their food budget. Uh, but we often talk about food deserts uh, or food access in terms of trying to help the poorest of the poor. But people who are living in abject poverty are reliant heavily on donated food from food pantries, uh, food kitchens, uh, soup kitchens, um, and they're not full-time participants in the retail market. So if you're living way below the poverty line, you can live next door to a grocery store but not be able to afford the items in it. Right. Uh, alternatively, people living well above the poverty line, uh, they have access to cars, they have um they can travel, that shrinks the map for them. They can travel to farther grocery stores. Um, and so distance isn't really the primary determinant of their dietary choices, because even though a grocery store might be three miles away, they might have to drive past a number of grocery stores on their way to work. Um, so it's the economic circumstances. It's this unique subset of people who are really uh, living on the edge where a little extra distance can really uh, cancel a trip to the grocery store. Um, two things that are important there that I just want to underline for for listeners is if you're trying to figure out sort of where 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 did the the, the food desert framing go wrong, um, as you just pointed out, right? If you don't have sufficient resources, putting a grocery store right next door to you doesn't necessarily do you a darn bit of good, right? If you can't actually afford to go there and don't have, um, uh, uh, I don't want to call it disposable income, you don't have the money yeah. available to make those purchases. The other thing, and you referenced this earlier as well is that the, the the food desert framing makes this assumption that people are sort of locked geographically to where it is that they live and sleep. But of course, that's not true even for lower income people, right? You go elsewhere to go to work, you go elsewhere to visit family, you travel around. So as you said, you may in fact be passing lots of grocery stores that aren't necessarily in your immediate era area. But again, Again, it's it's whether you're choosing to shop there or not involves a host of other kinds of, of calculuses and the mere presence of a store is not necessarily going to alter people's shopping, eating behavior, right? Right. It's people's geographic relationship to stores is dynamic. Uh, it changes according to whether or not they get a new job or if their family members move or if they've got... Um, appointments across town. You know, people living near the poverty line, if they're dependent upon any social services, they are going to appointments all the time. They're going to different governmental agencies and departments and offices. Um, and so they're crossing paths with these stores. Um, even uh, close to half of Americans uh, bypass their closest store anyway, just for a variety of different reasons, not uh, including but not limited to preference. Uh, and so to position or to measure distance to store from people's homes where they sleep, you know, ironically, uh, sleeping is the one time when you don't eat or shop. Uh, and so right. it's to rethink, you know, how is it that we can calculate um, the waypoints of people's lives to figure out how and why they get to the store? 
So we've got the link there between sort of talking about transportation and talking about social capital. Um, tell us a little bit just about the last mile problem as we think through how people do find food and, and how they go about it. Um, and then talk about the importance of social capital, particularly if, uh, you know, things like needing to get a ride from someone. How does that play out? And again, alter the kinds of decisions that are people people are making that aren't necessarily accounted for in the framing of, of food deserts. Right. So getting to the store um, poses a number of challenges for people without cars, obviously. Um, Bus systems and transportation systems can solve some of these problems. Um, Greenville is is not is is classified as a small city. So it's between 50 and 100,000. Um, and so it doesn't have the robust public transportation system of, of say, like a mega city with a, uh, a subway network, for example. Um, but bus systems are really good at getting people from bus stop to bus stop and not so much as getting people from their homes to the bus stop and from their bus stop to the store and from their store back to the bus stop. Um, and so I posit this as kind of a smaller version of the last mile problem is that anyone with any kind of mobility issues um, or even just a, a rainstorm. Uh, can yep. ruin a trip to the store in terms of lugging bags uh, to and from a bus stop. So I interviewed people who lived only a couple of blocks away from a bus stop, and the bus system would take them right to the parking lot of a large grocer, but the parking lot itself was uh, a quarter of a mile long all, uh, across and had some an elevation change. And so that alone made what would seem like a, a great transportation solution uh, and, and created just another set of problems for them. So if people didn't see the bus system as, as really well suited, uh, depending upon their circumstances, there was a pretty robust and informal ride network in the neighborhoods where I conducted my research. So this is just people asking friends, friends of friends uh, to to get rides. And I by talking to people who were dependent upon rides to the store, I came to see that there was sort of an economic calculus. So the price that people would charge to, to drive other people to the store was kind of dependent upon social distance. Um, you know, family members, obviously you drive them for free, but if it's a friend, maybe you might ask them to chip in a little bit for gas. If it's a friend of a friend, uh, maybe that goes up a little bit more. Um, and uh, this was a, a resource for them. This is through, that people were able to activate through their networks, through their um, activate their social capital. Uh, to use connections in a system of reciprocity, uh, this is if you do one favor for me, I'll do a favor for you. Uh, and it, it really kind of highlighted the, the tactical and strategic ways that people were much more savvy about their food environment in, that isn't quite recognized in most media accounts of the issue, where they weren't passive victims to their geography in ways that a lot of depictions of food desert residents do. So let's let's circle back to to where we started in talking about sort of the 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 notion that that if we bring a large supermarket into a poor and low income neighborhood that as you point out really does have demonstrable measurable negative health outcomes that differ from other places many of which are diet related um, why does it not alter eating behavior and why do people even those with access to a ride why don't they do what people say they should do right it's cheaper and it's better for you if you buy whole foods and you prepare them yourselves why don't more people do that well uh Life can get complicated, uh, <laughs> and it's not just for food desert residents; it's for all of us. I mean, there's the for time everybody. spent easier in, said than done, right? Time spent in the kitchen has been declining. 
expenditures uh, for food prepared outside of the home has been rising. Um, even the wealthiest among it, amongst us don't have particularly great diets. Um, fast food consumption goes up with income. Uh, it's just that wealthier folks have better access to health uh, resources, housing, education, and recreation to offset their bad diets. And so if you're trying to change the way people eat, um, it's getting to the store and back is just one problem they need to solve amongst many. And so when I was talking to people, one of the biggest barriers uh, was just the economy of scale of, of healthy home cooking that didn't work for their lives. Uh, the household size in the United States has been declining since for the past 50 years. It was about 3.5 and now it's about 2.6. Um, and that's average household size. And so uh, people who are living alone constitute one in seven adults. Uh, and for them to cook at home just doesn't really make sense time-wise or money-wise. It really is cheaper and faster uh, to buy food prepared outside the home. Now, food prepared outside the home can be healthier, uh, but it, that also means it's going to be more expensive. Um, but I came to see during my interviews that the really the best indicator of whether or not a home cooking could work for a family was the number of people inside the home at the same time with the same tastes. Uh, these could be people that could split up the divide the labor of home cooking, the you know the chopping and the measuring and the cooking and the washing, as well as share meals. Uh, so that they could finish leftovers and it wouldn't be bogged down by the monotony of eating the same thing seven times in a row. This became particularly salient for single parents because single parents, in many cases, were living together but eating apart from their children. Their children were uh, demanding, because they're being advertised to, uh, they were demanding uh, chicken nuggets and grilled cheese and mac and cheese and the whole genre of kids' food in America, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, and the parents would then have to cook something for themselves differently. And so that became really inefficient and it became really difficult. And they tried to convince their kids to eat the same foods that they did as adults. But to get kids to adopt new tastes, especially for more nutritious and bitter foods, um, requires it repeated exposure. And that repeated exposure uh, entails the, the risk of kids refusing food. So I, I ask you to eat something and, and you refuse it, that could potentially lead to food waste, which is economically uh, a difficult situation for me. And so the easiest route was to just buy food that they knew that their kids would eat, which also happens to be less healthy food, um, and then also buy food prepared outside of the home for themselves too, uh, so that they didn't have to make uh, their own separate meal just for them. Yeah. There's a... Uh, uh recent book by Priya Fielding Singh that I suspect you know called How the Other Half Eats um, that examines a similar set of questions. And one of the striking things that she finds in the interview with the uh, uh, poor and low income mothers who she spends time with is that they feel that they spend so much time saying no, right? Because so much is unavailable to their children that this is one of the places where they can say yes, right? They could stop at the fast food restaurant restaurant and give their child the meal they want and it's going to be satisfying and it's going to make them happy and that contributes to making them feel like they're being a good mother under extraordinarily constrained circumstances right verily similar sort of, of sets of logics that i think often in the policymaking world we just don't have on our radar yeah i, I mean obviously we'd like people to eat less fast food and junk food but at the same time Brand name fast food and junk food is some people's only 
access point into our popular consumer culture. Yep. Uh, you know, if you're if you're buying secondhand clothes and you're buying uh, off-brand shoes, then if you're a child in this country, you're separated from the other kids at the lunch table. But if you can open up your lunchbox and you've got a buy a bag of brand name junk food, uh, the same one that the other kids are eating, then you have a, a point of connection that you are also eating similar things, talking about similar things um, yeah. in ways, other aspects of your life, you're usually set apart and left to, to do the stuff um, that other kids don't have to. Yeah. Um, so Ken, as we work our way toward concluding, I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the activism that you witnessed and were a part of around bringing better retail options into the neighborhood. Um, and as you point out, right, the residents didn't really want a grocery store in order to improve their access to healthy food, but that's nonetheless often the argument that they made. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how the, the development politics play out around this issue? Yeah, it was um, the nature of the research was kind of twofold in that I attended a lot of public meetings, a lot of public meetings, and I would hear people stand up and say, we want a grocery store. We're sick and tired of these unhealthy options in our neighborhoods. Um, and it was really impassioned and got the attention of local politicians and policymakers. Um, but at the same time, I would interview these people in private in their homes and I would ask them what they eat and what they like to eat and what they would like to eat if they would like to make changes, what kinds of changes. Um, and they would describe that in many cases, you know, cooking healthy food from scratch just did not work for them. They couldn't do it. They might not have even had enough time to do it because of just the nature of their job and when they worked. Um, but nonetheless, uh, in public settings, they knew the plea for a grocery store uh, really got people's attention. And so there's kind of two levels to the, the food access debate, the public and the private. The private is very... Um, the logic behind it is kind of complicated and it can't be condensed into a short soundbite because people wanted uh, retail that they saw as good retail, retail meant for them, retail staffed by them that catered to their needs and their preferences um, and that respected their community and the history of their community. Um, even if they didn't necessarily intend or their economic circumstances precluded them from being able to support that business on a consistent basis. Now, that's a complicated talking point. <laughs> What's much easier is we want a grocery store because of these. We want to reduce these public health uh, tragedies that are going on in our communities. Um, and so they had kind of tapped into this really powerful talking point that if they focused on health and healthy eating, they could get attention because of the the abundance of food related social movements already existence in existence in America today. So this is slow food, local food, uh, non-GMO food, food justice, food equity, all these social movements have a broad political base that is largely staffed uh, in many instances by middle class uh, and white political advocates. Um, they are interested in healthy food. And so talking about healthy food leverages their power uh, in the political marketplace. Um, and so even though people didn't intend on changing their diets just because of the complexity of their the everyday realities of their life, they knew that focusing the issue on, on health was a, a politically powerful strategy. And so I don't think they weren't being deceptive and they weren't being 
uh, dishonest. They were just being strategic in that they had been complaining about the overabundance of lousy retail liquor stores, pawn shops, payday lenders. Nobody really cared for decades and decades until they reframed this debate into the language of healthy food. And that got a lot of people's attention really quickly. You are listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Kenneth Cobb, who is the author of Retail Inequality, Reframing the Food Desert Debate, uh, new out from University of California Press. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. This was fun.